I'm Dr. Taharka Ade. I hail from Mount Vernon, Alabama, a small town in the state of Alabama, Alabama in, in the United States of America. I uh, received my PhD in alcoholism from Temple University uh, under the under the advisement of uh, Maleficate Asante. Hello and welcome to Obehi Podcast. I'm your host, Obehi Ewanfo, and I strongly believe that everyone has a story to share. Now let's get started with this episode. I really love so much the conversation that we are about to have today as part of the series that we are doing about the life and legacy of um, people of African descent. Uh, In this case, of course, people of um, the African diaspora. Mm. And today we have the honor to talk to you about uh, uh, Du Bois. Uh, is one of the most respected individuals in the African diaspora. Uh, now, uh, as a form of description, just a kind of a brief description of him, what would you say? Uh, du Bois is considered uh, perhaps the most prolific thinker, African-American thinker of the 20th century. I would say he was uh, perhaps one of the most prolific thinkers um, period in in the 20th century uh, and really the 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 19th leading into the 20th century Du Bois lived a very long life uh, was born in uh, 1868 in Great Barrington Massachusetts uh, and uh, he passed away the night before the March on Washington okay now uh, we'll start with a bit of uh, his background what, what do you want people to know about um, the background of uh, Du Bois, uh, where he was born? With, I wanted to spend some time there. Uh, so Du Bois, as I said, he was born in Great Barrington, um, Massachusetts. Uh, he had a very interesting uh, upbringing. Uh, he uh, grew up principally with his mother's family, um, the, uh, the Burat um, family. And uh, he uh, didn't really have his his father around as much, although he had his father's last name. Um, he grew up in a in a town that was uh, largely white town. Um, but he he says in his autobiographies that uh, he would feel racism sometimes in that town, but he perhaps didn't really recognize it as a child to really know uh, what was happening. And then also because he was such a uh, bright uh, and intelligent child in school, he did so much better than many of his white counterparts uh, that uh, they kind of had a a respect for him, even if, uh, you know, they viewed him, you know, as lesser because of his race. That would actually... Uh, lead me to talk a bit about um, the circumstances surrounding the, the time that he was born. Because, of course, we are looking at an individual now. We are looking at a man. Uh, but before we can understand, the, we also need to understand the circumstances of the time. Because people don't live in void. They live in situation. They have experience. Uh, so how would you describe the United States as of the time Du Bois was born? We are looking at him as a young boy growing up in a society. But what kind of a society is it, actually? So where he was living in the United States at that time, uh, again, he was born in 1868, which means he was born three years after the end of the Civil War, which 
led to uh, uh, enslaved people across the country um, being uh, free uh, and with, you know, even though the Emancipation Proclamation had come before, but when that war ended, uh, that uh, subsequently um, forced all slaveholding states uh, to, you know, relinquish or to free their slaves. And so, uh, but at the time that his, he was born in the area that he was born, slavery was virtually, um, it had virtually ended by about the 1830s. So he had a, a very interesting um, uh, upbringing, I think, in uh, the Northeast United States, where uh, clearly slavery is still something that is, and uh, uh, this notion of, of, of race and, and Black people being lesser at that time is still something that's in uh, the consciousness of even you know, Northerners. But uh, it's a little bit different for them there because they've had a little bit more time to use the distinction of, of free um, African-Americans. And so in terms of Du Bois um, being born three years after the end of the Civil War and then growing up in the setting where he's having to, um, you know, one kind of realize, you know, just who he is, who his, what his identity is, um, and then also contend with uh, you know, the, the other school children of his age. Some of them, just a few of them, um, were also uh, African American, but uh, many of them were white in the in the location that he uh, that he lived. So it was it was a really interesting time. And um, Du Bois himself says that uh, he was uh, he wanted to have a, a better connection with um, with black people with with African Americans. And um, there was a moment in his childhood where he was in church and a black choir came to sing and it touched him and moved him. He cried and abused. This is an all white church or mostly white church, white controlled church, basically, I should say. And, uh, and but they you know, invited these, this choir to come sing and it touched him so much. And, and, and that was one of the first instances uh, that he realized that he was not as uh, close to African-American culture as he wanted to be because of the setting that he was. Um, at this time now that Du Bois was uh, going to school, uh, you made mention of uh, uh, him being very bright uh, in the class. Uh, for this reason, even those that were like him sort of have um, a respect for him because of his academic excellence, if we were to put it like that, then of course, that is the way it is. Um, is there anything that we can learn about um, uh, how maybe the society was there? Uh, by this time, there is the, there is no segregation in school, so the the so-called white and the so-called black can school together. Uh, so we have overcome the segregation. I don't know if there's anything you can say about that while he was growing up. So you know that's that's an interesting um, thing you just said there. There was segregation in school. Um, segregation had not really been, you know, overcome. But I think Du Bois comes along at a time at a very interesting time in uh, American society where, uh, you know, slavery is has ended, and we're still dealing with the um, the aftermath 
of that. And, you know, whites are trying to figure out, you know, really how they feel about socializing with African-Americans as equals, right? And uh, so in the, in the area that he lived, you know, he had the fortune to be able to go to school. Um, there were no, you know, as, as far as I know, there were no, you know, quote unquote, black schools, um, great schools for him to go to. So he, you know, he had the fortune to be able to do so. And, um, and so, but, but that didn't mean that uh, uh, there, that wasn't still the time that, that children were being <laughs> told that they couldn't go to school with uh, black children would, you know, being made to uh, not go to school with white children and, uh, or go to school at all, because they, you know, at this time, they're having to really create their own schools, right? Um, many, and particularly in the South, uh, schools, even colleges are uh, being created by formerly enslaved Africans or uh, uh, white philanthropists are assisting them in creating them. Um, but uh, as far as grade school, he was just in a very unique um, time and area of the country that, uh, you know, that he was able to uh, go to school. And then, and then eventually um, he gets into, into Harvard. And it is interesting, all of this happens before the, the dawn of the 20th century. And, uh, you know, by the time you get, you know, well into the 20th century, uh, there are more and more laws against, um, uh, uh, you know, black children able, being able to uh, go to schools or to um, be integrated in, in school systems. And so it's, um, and Du Bois is living through all of this time. So I, I'm sure it was very interesting for him to know that, okay, well, I went to a school where, you know, there was quite a bit <laughs> of uh, white children around. And, uh, and but here are these laws, they're forbidding um, uh, black children from going to school with, uh, with white children. And I don't, I don't really think that that was really uh the the concern would you know as far as going to school with white children it was more so the the schools that the white children were able to um to attend were better funded and uh had uh you know the most up-to-date textbooks and things of that nature so it was it was about the access to resources that black children were not allowed to have more so than you know the the integration factor Thank you for that. Uh, that. That clarification is, uh, is is very important. All right. Um, I, I refer back again when you made mention of the fact that um, in the school he was uh, uh, quite intelligent. So that is that is very important also to underline. Mm. Um, is there something else that we might learn from his school days? Uh, maybe because he have participated in an event, uh, or uh, he have been a leader in the school, or he have had friends, or any event that could have made him to be more active in the days of schooling? I can't think of a, a specific event right now. I'm sure after this interview, something will dawn on me. But uh, <laughs> uh, one thing I did, I, I do recall is that um, there was another black student in the school that he was, uh, that he attended. Uh, and I remember reading that uh, Du Bois felt uh, a little bit ashamed of him because he didn't excel as well as he did um, in academics. And and he thought that was, um, he really thought that was a shame. You know, he, he felt that that student should uh, excel even more than whites. Um, 
And so uh, I remember him talking about that. Another interesting tip, it, it, it didn't really have to do with him being in school. As a matter of fact, this happened. Yeah, so uh, this didn't really have anything to do with him being in school. In fact, this happened just a few months after he, um, a few months to a year maybe after he graduated from school, is that he was, um, he was, he was offered a job uh, to work on, uh, uh, to to help to assist with construction work on a house uh, that was being built by someone who was at that time considered the most wealthiest widow in America. Um, and her 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 husband, I don't know why his name escapes now, but her husband, um, you know, made a lot of money in uh, in the railroad industry. And then he dies and then she uh, goes off to marry someone else and she moves back to Great Barrington and she's building a house. And she uh, took a took a liking to Du Bois. And in taking a liking to him, she uh, uh, made sure he had a job working. So he wasn't actually doing construction. I think he was like a timekeeper. He was making sure that um, the people who were doing the construction could go on breaks, things of that nature. And what so his his job was not to do actual construction on the house, right? He was like a timekeeper for the people who were doing the uh, construction. And I believe he said he was getting paid something like a dollar a week. <laughs> or maybe it was a dollar a day, but I, I think it was, it was a dollar a week. But at that time, um, that was a lot of money for him. <laughs> um, and he was, he was uh, very uh, keen on saving all of that money. Um, or as much as he could because he wanted to he knew he wanted to go to college and he didn't want to go to just any college. He wanted to go to Harvard. Uh, that That is what was on his heart. He, he wanted to go to what he considered the best university, um, but he didn't end up going there at, at first. He ended up there eventually. But um, where he went before that, I think um, he looks back on his life as something that was a, a great benefit to him, but also kind of taught him some lessons about himself, uh, which was Fisk University. He ended up in, in, in Fisk in Tennessee, in the South, in the segregated South, where uh, he had to you know, really get used to this, um, this notion of being a problem, quote unquote, in American society, as he would put it. All right, now he went to Harvard, and, and Harvard, like you, of course, uh, pointed out it's not just any university. This is one of the best in town. Mm. And, and of course, I, I, I want to imagine that that will also be very expensive. Uh, do we know how he might have financed his education uh, or anything we can learn about that? Um, from what I remember, for Harvard, he received some scholarship, but I can't remember from what foundation or, or what perhaps wealthy philanthropist he got it from. I know to, to, to finance his, um, his education at, I said, I know to, to finance his education at Fisk, he had a, a very influential preacher who um, convinced his church and, and a few other churches to uh, put their monies together to uh, finance him while he was at Fisk. Uh, his education at Harvard uh, as I said, I, I can't recall exactly where the funding came from, um, but what I do know is that uh, Harvard, but they would not accept the fact that uh, 
you know, that that Fisk um, bachelor's was equal to their own. So he had to receive another bachelor's degree while at Harvard before he can go on to get his PhD. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you for that. That is very important. If I, that's something I really find very interesting there, that uh, in this uh, church pastor uh, happened to organize or maybe tell other people to support uh, for the education of uh, the boys. I found that critically important because now it looked to me like as if maybe the, the people are saying we need uh, more enlightened people in the society. We, we need somebody to also be there to maybe at the end of the day to also represent us or something. I don't know, but I really find that to be a highly valuable as even a thinking to see that, you know, it is said that it takes the village to raise a child. This comes very clear now, as it were. Anyway, that is just by the way. Um, now, in the life of the boys, uh, is there somebody we can uh, point a hand on as somebody who could have influenced him, uh, maybe choosing the, the the path that he went to as a, a critically important individual in society at the end of the day, but somebody that influenced him to take this trajectory? Um, he had a quite a few people that influenced him. Uh... But they, they influenced him in, in, in different and interesting ways. And so I, I can't really think of someone who was the most influential in terms of him wanting to, uh, you know, better himself in, as far as education and, and to be a scholar and professor. But, uh, uh, but what I can say is that he was very much influenced by um, his his want and his need to really understand who he was and who African-Americans are and what it meant to be um, a Negro as what it what you know he would have been called at that time in American society. And I think you know there was a lot of self-propelling influence. Um, that that he had, but th- but definitely there were individuals around him that um, that he thought were influential. All right, thank you for that. Uh, now um, he was uh, at, okay. That, that is this kind of uh, inborn tendency in him to try and understand uh, the the identity of the people that he is part of. Okay, this is very important. At what point in his life can we say this became the dominant? Um, goal for him that this was an area that he really wanted to study to understand and to make his impact uh, was it when he was still maybe junior in school when he had finished when he was in harvard or is there anything we can learn about that at what point in his at the stage of his life i mean when you when you read his autobiographies it's, it's, it's almost as if he's saying that this has been with him his whole life um from from the moment of hearing uh, that that black choir in that church and wanting to have a, a greater connection with um, with African Americans and African American culture, even though there there was a small demographic of African Americans who lived in the town that he lived in, and there was even um, a African African Methodist Episcopal Church that was founded in his childhood. So you know he had he had some of that, but. Um, I think he, you know, he just really had a longing for really understanding um, his own people. And uh, so although 
he could not go to Harvard uh, right out of high school. Um, he was very, very excited about the prospect of going to Fisk, of going to Tennessee to attend a, 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 a historically black college and, um, and, and to be around his own people. And <laughs> there was uh, uh, a little note that he, he mentioned, he made in his autobiographies uh, about uh, his excitement about being around more black women <laughs> when he was there. So, um, so yeah, so, you know, there was, it was very um, kind of just always a part of him. He gets to Harvard. Um, he is a uh, historian at Harvard or, he, you know, he's getting his PhD in his history. At the time, there was no PhD in sociology, but he, um, you know, he's definitely uh, developing the uh, sociologist in himself while he's at Harvard and also when he studied abroad. We learned about him growing up, uh, going to school, uh, going to Harvard and eventually becoming uh, a history expert in Harvard. Uh, at what point uh, can we say he actually have gotten to a full bloom in his career and how did he rise to that point? We can, you know, we can say that perhaps uh, his essay of our Negro strivings um, was was pretty influential. So around you know 1897 or so, uh, uh, Du Bois is starting to, you know, kind of uh, uh, rise as a scholar. People are starting to pay attention to him, and and definitely um, by uh, the first decade of the 20th century. Uh, with the publishing of uh, Philadelphia Negro, as well as uh, the Soul of Black Folk, uh, Du Bois is, you know, starting to uh, really rise at this time as a uh, principal thinker in in society. And, and you know, he's he's in his 30s. He's still very young, and uh, but his his work is, you know, uh, is is very influential. Um, at this time, and it's it's spreading really all over the world. Um, by 1911, you had um, uh, a Ghanaian um, uh, lawyer and 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 philosopher, if you will, uh, Casely Hayford, who's you know criticizing Du Bois really of his notion of uh, double consciousness, uh, but but that means he's reading. Uh, du Bois um, all the way in Ghana in 1911. So, uh, so Du Bois, you know, very early on in his career started to rise. If we were to say this is the key message that Du Bois uh, was trying to push um, uh, in the course of his career, you know, we can have a writer who write books and we can pick, even though this writer have written like uh, maybe uh, 20 or 10 or three or five books, if we take it and examine the test, we can see that there is a message on the line that he or she is trying to cut across. In most of the cases, not, not in all the cases, but in most of the cases, usually it's like this. Um, if we look at uh, Du Bois in this sense, what can we say what his key message that he actually wanted to cut across in, his, in the work that he was doing for African-Americans or people of African descent, if we want to just put it in general? Some key points um i believe du bois um 
would agree <laughs> to be some key points. Early on in his um, in his career, uh, Du Bois was not an integrationist, um, at least not in the sense of um, uh, Frederick Douglass. Du Bois was very, uh, very much felt that there is a that African Americans have a heritage that they should be proud of, and um, although he, you know, didn't really have a, a, a an understanding of that heritage that he would have later in his life, uh, he felt that it was something that um, you know you shouldn't just assimilate. Um, so I, I, I would I would reframe that to say he wasn't an assimilationist in the same way as as maybe a Douglas. And uh, so he you know he didn't feel like you should assimilate to the degree that you just you know erase that heritage. Um, but you know very early on in his life. He felt that uh, people of African descent had a lot to teach America, um, but he also felt that America had a lot to teach people of African descent. Now, this is his early 30s, and this is, uh, you know, I'm kind of paraphrasing his uh, comments in uh, The Soul of Black Folk, which, you know, uh, really this portion of it came from um, an, an article that he had published uh, a few years prior. But uh, but this is where we get the term double consciousness, right? This idea of double consciousness. From what I have seen, I have not seen those two terms, I mean, those two words, that term, um, in any of Du Bois's works from that. Yeah, I, I haven't seen the those two words strung together in any of Du Bois's works from that point forward, um, the, the words double consciousness. Although we have all of this theory um, surrounding, you know, this term double consciousness. And, uh, and, it and what I like to tell people is that Du Bois was barely 30 years old when he, when he wrote that, right? And he lived until he was 95 years old. He had 65 more years of life, 65 more years of intellectual growth that often gets ignored because uh, you know, there's so much focus on things like double consciousness and the talented tenth, which that too he you know revised as um, as he went on, uh, you know, as as he advanced in his career and um, evolved in his intellectual thought. And so, uh, but we often kind of freeze Du Bois in a time in uh, the early 20th century. And, um, you know, there, there might be some minor mention of him being a Pan-Africanist thinker, but I, I believe that that became, you know, very, very much um, a part of his life and a key point that he would want to get across to people. Um, and he, he did get across to people um, towards the end of his life that, uh, that the West, as he put it, um, and and really a showing of his evolution of thought. I don't think that Du Bois felt that, that America had too much to show <laughs> uh, the Negro of the world anymore. He felt that it was part of, and uh, in, in, in his words, the pattern of human culture that has led the world to ruin. And uh, so he was putting a lot of stock into the African world and, and for um, people of African descent to really you know, get themselves together and to rise as um, a, a, a superpower that 
um, not not just in the sense to rival um, Western powers, but be, but to be able to have some sense of sovereignty and autonomy so that it's not so affected by the West anymore. And um, and so and that's and that's what he advocated um, uh, all the way until the end of his life. So I was uh, thinking, of course, um, just before you concluded with this uh, with this part, uh, try to understand what could have be uh, his own uh, his own approach uh, to maybe reach out to other people of African descent, but this time not in the United States, because there are a lot of African descent that are uh, outside the United States, and hundreds of millions of them um, from Brazil to. Argentina to the Caribbean to the United Kingdom, there are hundreds, there are hundreds of them, uh, hundreds of us. So, um, what do we remember of the boys? Try to reach reach out or extend a hand of fellowship to people of African descent uh, that might be suffering from the same situation of those in the United States, but that not within the territory of the United States, but who might have a common objective. What do you have to say about that? Uh, well, Du Bois is considered one of the fathers of Pan-Africanism, right? So um, he attends the 1900 uh, Pan-African Pan Conference um, hosted by um, Henry Sylvester Williams. Um, and so he attends that conference and he's very much influenced by, you know, what occurs there. And by 1919, he holds a Congress in Paris uh, something that actually was not supposed to happen. <laughs> um, but Du Bois, um, in his sadness, found a way to make it happen um, by leaning on um, a uh, Senegalese uh, French general at the time who um, had the power to kind of allow him to hold this conference. And he tells him, um, you can hold this conference, but don't advertise it. Uh, and uh, that didn't work out very well. It, it, got, it got some advertisement, um, but it was it was interesting. Uh, there were twelve. Uh, it was fifty or so delegates there, people of African descent across the African world. But it was twelve delegates delegates there who um, who hailed from African countries, and uh, so in in that Congress was not the last. He had. Uh, several more throughout his lifetime. There was a second, third, and fourth Congress that he principally organized, um, uh, along with others. And then the fifth Congress, which is the last one that he attended, um, he uh, he didn't principally organize, but he was, you know, he was kind of made the uh, chairman, so to speak, of this Congress um, by uh, uh, people like uh, Kwame Nkrumah and, and uh, Jomo Kenyatta, who were, you know, principally uh, the people who were running this conference, this Congress. And so, uh, so you know, Du Bois was very much uh, an, an advocate of, of Pan-Africanism and wanted um, people of African descent all across the African world uh, to unite on a uh, political basis. Thank you so much for that. That, that is important for us to understand. Uh, okay, at that time now, we see these different Africans from different countries, different territory, coming together to organize conference. Uh, yeah, one of the person that I did interview did make reference to the, um, the 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 conference in also in London. I don't know if you make reference to that too. I think Du Bois was also there on Pan Africanism, 
Uh, yeah. So, yeah, that is important for us to know because we are trying to study their history. We are trying to understand them, try to understand what they did and also how they did it so that because we haven't got it to our destination yet. So it is important that we understand what those before us have done so we can learn from them and see how we can sort of strategize to keep on fighting until we get to where we are going. We have a destination. How was it even possible for them to, to go across this, uh, this uh, national borders, for example? Because now the boys is in U is the U.S. Uh, speaking English and is have to negotiate or have to talk with people that are in France. How easy was it to do this cross-continental conference? Uh, how was it? What was motivating it? And how simple was it? How complex was it? I don't know how what you want to say about it, but I try to understand how it was for them. I'm looking for the how they wanted to do it. Um, well, I'm not sure if Du Bois was absolutely fluent in French. Um, I'm certain he he knew he he could speak French and and uh, and and could uh, to talk with people at least enough to be able to uh, uh, to do their negotiations or, you know, do their organizing and planning and things of that nature. But the, the, the boys had, a, you know, a lot of people who uh, supported him and, um, you know, had their own gifts. And so uh, the, the, the situation in, in Paris uh, with the boys uh, specifically, uh, he was able to, um, as I say, lean on this, um, this Senegalese um, uh, general who, uh, I always butcher his name. <laughs> so I, I, uh, I was trying not to say it, but uh, Blaise, and I know it's not um, Diagne, but it's, it's kind of how it's spelled. Um, but I, I think it's probably pronounced Jean or Jean or something of that nature. Um, but the boys had this just, just kind of eerie way of, um, uh, having people gravitate towards him and, and, and having people respect him, even some of the most advent uh, races of the world um, or racist philosophers, I'll put it that way, of the world. Uh, for example, and this is a bit off topic from what you're asking, but just to give you some clarity, um, someone who, you know, you wouldn't think at all would have any respect for um, a Du Bois uh, was uh, Flinders Petrie. Flinders Petrie is known as the father of Egyptology. He developed um, uh, methods such as seriation and all kinds of things that are still used in archaeology to this day. And, and Petrie definitely looked down on uh, people of you know, any other race. Um, and as a matter of fact, Petrie developed what is known as the dynastic race theory, right, where he suggested that um, in Egypt, in ancient Egypt, that the people who are there, uh, you know, the the people that you could say are of African descent are not the people who founded the dynasties or were the governing agencies of Egypt, that that was some type of uh, Eurasian influence that came in and they founded these dynasties, right? Because he could not fathom that uh, people of African descent uh, could found you know these these great dynasties that um, and 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 commission these great um, monuments and and uh, uh, have writing so many thousand year thousands of years ago and, and and things of that nature. But Petrie, interestingly enough, 
read Du Bois' The Soul of Black Folk, and they had a correspondence. And Du Bois uh, kind of uh, lambasted him, in a sense, for his treatment of the Egyptian workers and how he uh, did not uh, afford the Egyptian workers the, um, the kind of recognition of their humanity and uh, the, uh, the recognition of the fact that they, that they are worthy of things like an education and a, and a living wage and all kinds of things. And uh, Petrie seemed very, um, you know, remorseful. I don't know if he changed his ways. I highly doubt it. <laughs> but, but in his letters back to Du Bois, you know, he seemed like he he really wanted to connect with him, and um, and so he, you know, so he did. So so Du Bois uh, had this interesting way of of getting people to like him. Now that doesn't mean that everybody did, right? Um, uh, but he. He definitely had that type of influence. So, you know, th this, this, this calling these congresses and having people from uh, different parts of the diaspora uh, look up to him and respect him. And, um, you know, that was, you know, just kind of part of his character. That was part of his power. And then this, to me, that's one of the most powerful things um, that people can yield is the power of influence, and that's definitely what he had. All right, that's great. That's great. All right, so they organized these different conferences uh, from uh, US to UK to France, I think even to some other country. I don't know uh, of, uh, of Italy, Rome, or anything, but uh, I'm sure that uh, there were many other places that some of these conferences were organized at the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, in fact, I, I really do think that uh, Africa were more united there because they have a common a common goal. Now we are more divided because we, we believe that we have arrived, but we haven't arrived at all. In these conferences that were organized, what is the outcome of it? What can we say with the outcome of it? Uh, say, okay, we are going there because we want to start the war, uh, or maybe we are going there because we want to liberate ourselves. Uh, these are the strategy we need to do this first do this one then do this one then do that one what can you say about that so um i, I will kind of touch on what you were saying earlier as well as your question um which is you know in these congresses if you look at the resolutions from these congresses um they're not necessarily i mean i guess for their time they can be considered somewhat radical you know these these kind of you know I wouldn't really call them demands, right? Uh, they were um, not really suggestions either, but kind of this middle of the road, hey, uh, uh, colonial powers, will you um, have the humanity to allow your colonial subjects to uh, get an education, to be able to get involved in their, their own politics, their own state politics, and eventually take over their own countries from you uh, so that, you know, we, <laughs> we, uh, or so that ostensibly uh, you have um, independent nations that, you know, are on the same level as Europe and that the, the world would be at a better place uh, for that. Now, of course, um, I would imagine even Du Bois at this time 
thought that you know these resolutions and then and those resolutions continued from each Congress they they refined them and added more and things of that nature. But I would imagine even Du Bois at this time knew that this was um, this was a long shot. You know, how do you ask colonial powers who have every interest in remaining colonial powers um, because of the resources, um, both human and natural resources that they're gaining from their their um, their power in um, or their domination of these African states um, or really of the people because the states are arbitrary. These are things that the colonial powers themselves created, but they have every um, interest in remaining in power. How do you ask them <laughs> to give up that power? Um, so I think uh, they were uh, they were you know really kind of uh, searching for methods in getting one the international community um, to see what they were doing in, in getting them uh, to kind of you know shame the West and perhaps um, that was you know quite a method during the civil rights movement. So um, but but also you know perhaps the West will eventually see, just as they did see um, during uh, when they ended the slave trade, um, England being the first country to do so, uh, they would eventually see that this is a, uh, a you know horrific human rights issue, as well as uh, eventually this may end up costing you know you. This might end up costing Western Western powers in some way. When these, when the peoples of these states began to revolt, or uh, you know, whatever the case may be, um, these were resolutions, you know, to put uh, to put in place in order uh, to have some plan of motion for uh, people of African descent to be able to govern themselves. Now, uh, I look at those resolutions. So, so I have a book coming out in August. On this very thing, on on Du Bois, it's called uh, W E B Du Bois's Africa, scrambling for a new Africa. And I look at these things, and I and I question, um, uh, I question a few things as I just kind of allude to that question. You know, it was Du Bois and these in these men, uh, particularly at that first Congress, uh, those twelve delegates from um, different African. Uh, nations were they, uh, you know, being a bit uh, not necessarily disingenuous, but you know, trying to call on the uh, or pull on the heartstrings of the Western world <laughs> to try to uh, you know say, hey, you know, th this is this is what you should do to be uh, triumphant. You know, as uh, as as you know, as Europeans, you know, you you call this the white man's burden to civilize the world. Well, this is how you can civilize um, the world and then leave the world in a better state than what you left it. And so I I kind of even though I I think that you know there were there was perhaps some notion of pulling at the heartstrings and the way they worded certain things was to kind of you know. Um, uh, kind of, you know, give the West a sense of superiority and things of that nature in order to kind of um, uh, uh, placate them um, into doing what they wanted them to do. 
But um, I also say that if the language that they wrote in those resolutions stood and the West actually took it seriously, then what they really were calling for was a further um, mental, political, cultural, religious um, colonization of the African continent, right? Um, and, and really ushering in kind of a, a neo-colonialism because they're basically saying that, um, so one of the resolutions says something to the degree of to allow the native, now, I, I, and I found this word interesting because here you have 12 delegates from African countries and it doesn't seem like they're referring to themselves as natives, <laughs> but they're they're referring to you know these people back home, right, as the natives. So so I say that you know perhaps the native in their mind you know, are those who have not been civilized, those who have not been uh, giving a, uh, or a, a allowed a Western education, right? And uh, so you know to allow the quote unquote natives to get an education as if the quote-unquote natives are not receiving their own indigenous education, right? Um, but an education worthy enough to be able to run these Western uh, uh, governments. And I question you know, if these natives themselves were asked, hey, how, how do you view governance? How would you, you know, without, you know, they don't have Western education, they have their own indigenous education. How do you view governance? Do you think these arbitrary borders that the West has built around these these um, these countries, do you think they're necessary? Have they not split up their your homes, split up your clans, things of that nature? Um, should we be looking at governing in a different way, in 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 ways that uh, that is more in line with your own cosmology. All these kinds of things; those things are not asked, right? What is what is being um, put forth is that the Western uh, stance to governance, the Western measurement, is the correct one, and uh, and for these. Uh, the people of Africa to be able to properly govern themselves, they must be properly educated by the West and then go on to um, and to go on to run these colonial governments and, and essentially um, become black faces with, you know, black skin, <laughs> white masks. <laughs> Thank you so much for that, Dr. Ade, for raising that point. Um, I think it's very important because I think we need to be to be clear at some point that it is even complicated uh, by independence if what we have in Africa can be vaguely said independent because we don't have independence in Africa. Um, the European came to Africa for the purpose of their interest. It is we that misunderstood them, thinking that they are there for our interest. Nobody is there in Africa for the interest of the African people. It's only the African people that are there because that depends on their survival now. If you are, if you are known... If your interest is not for yourself, that is your whole problem. So to think that um, we will uh, manage to convince the European to do something in Africa for the interest of Africa, which might be against their interest, 
I think it doesn't work like that. Because now we're talking of the border, the border that the European created. Because now, it looks like you create a catastrophe. You are going to solve that. It is their cause. They are, they are up until now, 2023, the European, in their consciousness, it hasn't occurred to them that they have done something wrong in Africa, for example. That they have mismatched people together and they have not allowed these people to decide yet how they want to stay together or separate. We, we need to understand that everything needs to be questioned. Everything. Everything at all needs to be questioned. All right. Having said that, what is the connection between the Du Bois movement at the time and also the people in Africa? A kind of, I don't know, was there a conflict that we can also reference maybe in Egypt, in Cairo, or maybe in, in Nigeria, in Lagos, or in Accra, or maybe a conference that was done there, and then there will be a delegate coming from US, uh, from UK. I'm trying to see this transcontinental dialogue now going on among the African, known through the European people that are trying to negotiate, trying to help us make peace. We know how to make peace. As African people, without the intervention of the European, we can make peace. So I'm trying to see that our own doing it among ourselves. What do you want to say about that? Uh, well, the first part of your question, um, as far as conferences in Africa itself, I mean, you, you still have to realize this is this is colonial times, right? So it was, it was hard for, uh, even though they tried to organize them, and they eventually did, some of the conferences did end up being on the continent. Um, and then, of, of course, Ghana became kind of the center for it for, for a good while. Uh, because of Kwame and Kuruma. Um, but uh, so, you know, col colonial powers did not, you know, did not want Africans organizing in Africa. You know, you, you can organize over here in Manchester where we can watch you, right? <laughs> and so, um, and so with that, um, I, what I will say is uh, one thing that really stood out to me is uh, here we have Du Bois near the end of his life um, in the late 1950s. Uh, he writes a speech. Um, I believe the conference is called the All African People's Conference, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, um, that was being held in Accra. And uh, he writes the speech, but he wasn't he wasn't able to deliver the speech himself. He he gave it to his his wife um, to deliver. But in that speech, you can really see that Du Bois is you know his evolution is is his intellectual inter evolution is happening here, because in that speech, uh, Du Bois I think comes the closest he ever did um, to discussing not the racial paradigm, which I think is is an error for us to, to talk about um, this racial paradigm, because Du Bois himself even says that really race is, uh, you know, is relegating your identity down to skin color and hair texture. It's all it really is, right? But Du Bois is, uh, it, it seems to me, starting to think of the cultural paradigm. What is the cultural paradigm of, of Africa. So in this speech, he's encouraging uh, people of African descent or people in, you know, in the African continent uh, to 
if if you have a, a language, for example, that is not as as spoke as well spoken or as, as spoken as much as some of these larger languages, you know, like Kiswahili or whatever, then perhaps you need to start thinking of submitting um, to those larger languages. You need to start thinking of coming together and becoming more solidified. And I, and I think his argument was, uh, you know, really solidified culturally. But I had a, a small problem with, with that, even though I found that to be profound. And, the, and language wasn't the only example he gave, but, he, you know, he gave a few examples of, you know, how you should kind of uh, uh, not lose, but, um, you know, see some of your, uh, you know, just kind of cede some of your culture to the larger ones um, so that that you we can create kind of this, you know, this composite African. And And I know what he was thinking about. What he was thinking about was what was happening in Europe during the Renaissance and during the Enlightenment period, where these things started to come to be. They started to find uh, a, a, a common cultural antecedent in Greece and Rome, although you know, many of these people had no relation to Greece and Rome. <laughs> but but I, I think he was starting to you know, say, okay, we, we need to build that type of cultural co uh, uh, cohesion, cultural cohesion. But my critique of that was, and, and and perhaps you know something that Du Bois you know it wasn't really uh, a privy to him at least not in the same sense even though he had some idea of this um, to some degree. I look at things like and and Du Bois mentions this in one of his books, The World in Africa, the, the Bantu migration, right? Um, and, and most scholars now uh, or most of the scholarship likes to call it the Bantu expansion instead of migration and then one time I think it was called the Bantu invasion but expansion is what's starting to be used and and with that uh, the the Bantu language system um, is is the largest language system in the African continent right um, from from the highlands of Cameroon to East Africa down to the Cape Coast, right? And uh, and so in my mind, that means that uh, there is a whole lot of synthesizing that can happen when it comes to this notion of all these different languages. Not the ne not not necessarily having to uh, lower your language to another. But there's, you know, there's a lot of synthesizing that can happen between these languages and between cultures um, that, that is, I believe is very possible. People talk about, you know, um, uh, the syncretic nature of, of African people, not only on the African continent, but especially those who were taken and brought into the West and they had to, you know, um, be syncretic with other uh, religions and other cultures and stuff that are whole, wholly foreign to Africa. But here you have uh, a linguistic system, a phylum, if you will, the, you know, uh, if you, if you want to extend it even further back to the, the Niger-Congo phylum of languages, that, um, that you can actually look for connections that actually exist, cultural connections that actually exist, 
that you can start synthesizing and start to you know create um, this notion of um, of what an African is and should be because you know we all know that the notion of an African is a very new construction right people in uh, the 19th century weren't going around and saying that you know I'm African they would say that you know you're Yoruba you're Igbo or you're you know <laughs> whatever your ethnicity was but um, but you know this new construction of African if you really want to um, uh, uh, really create this pan-African identity, then uh, then there's a cultural basis, I argue, for for doing so. And, uh, and, and it doesn't have to mean that people have to lose parts of themselves or groups have to lose parts of themselves. What it can mean is that we can do what we've always done, which is, you know, the dynamic recreation of culture, dynamic recreation of language throughout history and time, and, and, and doing that in a conscious, you know, sense is, is, you know, no less than when it was done unconsciously. It becomes very important here. It becomes very important. Uh, okay. In this series, The Life and Legacy, um, the one that we just published, I think that should be like two or three days ago. Uh, it was um, on The Life and Legacy of the First President of Nigeria, Dr. Nandi Azikwe. So the guest I was interviewing at the point we were saying, that, of course, I was saying that uh, in the recreation of Nigeria, because like I said before, Nigeria, we are in a quagmire. Our identity is a problem. We don't know where we are going. This is, a, this is the most populous country in Africa. It's extremely rich. We have a lot of intelligent people in the country. We are not supposed to be like this. This is not the way it's supposed to be. We can do something, but how can we? How can we rescue the Nigerian power from the hands of very few mafias, mm. both international and local, who just turn Nigeria into mumu? This is not who we're supposed to be. We are supposed to do better than what we are doing. In twenty twenty three, Nigeria still live in the dark. I was saying, how many centuries ago have light be invented? How come we have a lot of university? Somebody have come out to say we are going to provide a solution. We need this and this and this. This is what is going to be done. The road is in shambles. A lot of Nigerians are trooping away. How many Nigerians do we have in the United States? Not because they, they don't like their country. Because the mechanism that make up the reality of the country is so complex. And of course, this is how the West want it. And we have few people in the country who just like to be the new slave masters. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. So what I was suggesting in the interview is, uh, is that I'm not saying Europeans are the best, but because I live in Europe, I see what is happening here. I'm just making a reference mm -hmm. that in Nigeria, because we are looking for identity, no multiple identity that is going to cause confusion. Let, let's do things simple. We should have maybe one dominant language. I'm going to be provoking the sensitivity of some people. Yeah, I know, but I'm saying that. Mm. We can either pick one of them, maybe Yoruba or Hausa or Igbo. It doesn't matter. We pick one. Every other person needs to make sacrifice. Mm. This language is going to be the official language of Nigeria because you need to have an identity. Mm. We pick color that represents us. All of us are going to live and die for this identity. If we do that, even if you say U.S. Marie to come and conquer Nigeria, it will be difficult for them. 
Because everybody will be defending this. But if we are breaking up into little, little pockets of interest, hey, I'm fighting for this, that is what we are fighting for, that is what we are fighting for, we look like a broom where each one is, of, is each one of us is single. Even the least army in the world can conquer Nigeria. Mm. The, the proposal from uh, Du Bois of maybe we can manage culture. It is possible. In fact, not that it is possible. This is the way it is. It has always been like this. Mm-hmm. In Africa, people have been moving from north to south to east to west for thousands of years. This language that we have are creations. We create them because we want to... Let me use... Okay, I will not use European example now. Let's go to Africa to use an example. If you go to the borderland between Nigeria and Niger, or between uh, Nigeria and Benin, if you go to the border, the border between the line, no? It will be difficult for you to know which is actually Nigeria and which is actually Niger. Mm. The reason is that language is a living thing. You exchange it. You, I speak with you all the time. So we understand each other. You understand my sentences. You understand my feeling. You know me. It is true that it's a border, a physical border. But that border doesn't really exist for us. Because if I need something, I come to you. Mm-hmm. Our language also is like that. We can talk to each other. It is when we begin to move away from each other... Then that this language begin to have meaning. So that if you even come to a country like Europe or US or in North America, for example, you are moving between, if there is a, a, um, a, a, a very physical border you can reach between Canada and the United States, and people are living there, you will at a point you will not know what is US and what is Canada. Mm. Because they are speaking all the time, their their language will miss up, their culture will miss up. Which means that it is not even a bad thing if we as a human being can accelerate this process to say that in Nigeria, for example, or in Congo, that we want to even speak English fine. In Australia, they speak English, but their English is different from the one that is spoken in the US or in the UK. We can decide to rewrite our own English, write our dictionary, and make it the way we want it. This becomes the Nigerian English, for example. Of course, I'm using Nigeria because that is where I'm coming from. That is what I know better. So I, I really like that idea of deciding consciously to recreate our identity. Mm-hmm. And I think we must do that if we want to come out of this mismatch, confusion that we are. No, absolutely. And I, th- I think that that is a, a must. Um, and, and what you said earlier, it, it, I mean, hits the nail on the head. You know, the, the, the European colonizers, they came in. And to some degree, they created some ethnicities. Um, you know, they created ethnicities out of, you know, uh, uh, groups that were actually just related clans, right? What do you call these people over here? Oh, those are the people that live by the river. So that's what we call them. Those are the people that, you know. And so they kind of created these separations in people when, if those people were to talk to each other, there might be some dialectical differences, but they can understand, you know, each other to some degree. Um, There has to be someone, if we take Nigeria, for example, someone who is brilliant enough and brave enough to say, how do I synthesize the languages of Nigeria and, and give us a national language, right? 
Um, how do I bring that? I mean, this doesn't mean erasing ethnicities and their and their, you know, but who is going to be um, the Alexander Pushkin of Nigeria, right? You know, who's going to be the person who says, let's uh, perhaps even elevate one of the African scripts, one of the Nigerian scripts, you know, and let's stop using this Latin script and let's, <laughs> let's synthesize these um, these languages based off of that and really create a national culture in that way. That's what it's going to take. That is, is what it's going to take to really bring people together. Thank you so much for that. I, I appreciate that. I really do. Now, now we are moving to the to your book. But mm -hmm. but before we, we, we move there, you know, you said something important because a lot of Africans even, because a lot of people don't even know that we have scripts in Africa or in Nigeria, no? Yeah. They don't know that we can even write. They don't know that it, we can even imagine the possibility that we can write. That is how bad the situation is. Mm -hmm. Anyway, we will leave that for another day. <laughs> now, <laughs> uh, so you are talking about uh, um, Web Du Bois today because uh, it's something that is passionate, you are really passionate about, and you have even written a book about it, which is coming uh, in August. Uh, now, of course, we are not going to go deeper because I don't want you to do, do, do the spoiler for it. But of course, you can give some people, you give people some more, some some hints. So, what prompted you to write a book about Du Bois? I knew this question was coming. Du <laughs> <laughs> um, Bois has been a part of my consciousness for a very, very long time. Um, I mentioned in the book that the first time I probably had any real recognition of Du Bois uh, was in high school, um, my freshman year in high school. And, and I remember uh, there was a poster of him um, in several of the classrooms uh, and, uh, that, that described him as, you know, a great sociologist and, um, you know, great African-American thinker, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I would imagine, you know, and this is just really me guessing, I, I, I can't think of a moment that one won't, it won't visualize in my mind, but my, my grandfather was a history teacher for over 30 years. So I would imagine at some point in my childhood, he had to have mentioned Du Bois as well. However, I do know by high school, I remember, you know, I, I can visualize him being in my mind. By the time I got to college, get to undergrad, and uh, I'm really trying to, um, you know, I'm very much invested in African-American identity. And, and so, so very similarly to Du Bois, you know, even it was ever since I was a child and, and really by the influence of my grandfather, um, I was very much into African-American history, African-American identity, you know, what, what, what all of these things mean, right? Um, and, 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 what, and what is my own identity, you know, what, what should I consider myself? And so when I get to college, I'm reading the works of Du Bois, but, you know, the very early stuff, as I said, um, Negro Strivings, Soul of Black Folk, Philadelphia Negro, um, those things that he, he writes at, at, at a time that he, you know, was actually younger than I am right now. <laughs> and, um, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm amazed, you know, wow, you know, this, this, this person, a brilliant thinker, I was amazed for, for the, you know, in the mind frame that I was in at that time. And, uh, and the principal P. 
people that uh, that the boys that I'm being taught that the boys um, was, uh, you know, at odds with, of course, is, uh, uh, well, the principal person is Booker T. Washington. So it's this notion of, you know, liberal education versus, um, uh, you know, being taught to, you know, uh, work in agriculture, work with your hands, right? And, you know, being educated to be able to, to, to be, to, uh, to be self-sustaining, which, you know, the, this versus, um, even in undergrad, I thought was ridiculous. Uh, these, these are things we both need, right? These are, uh, we need uh, to educate people to um, be able to work with their hands and, and, and to be involved in agriculture and to be involved in uh, brick, uh, brick masonry and, and architecture and all kinds of stuff. But we also need people who um, are the thinkers of the philosophers or those who um, think of the ways to drive the culture forward, right? And so, so I'm, I'm getting all of this, but in the fall of 2009, uh, I come across, um, so, so we, we have a new chaplain. At, well, not chaplain. He wasn't chaplain. He was actually the, the director of the Wesley Foundation, which was a Methodist foundation at um, Alabama State University. And so he, he uh, Dr. Stephen Redman, he comes in as his first semester as the, as the um, director of the Wesley Foundation. And he, for whatever reason, is, is living three doors down from my apartment <laughs> complex. And, uh, and so I, I remember uh, running into uh, the, uh, the the manager of the apartment complex, and, and, and she says to me incorrectly that the chaplain of your school lives three doors down. You should go talk to him one day, right? And so I, I, I said, sure. So I go talk to him and one night, and uh, he's not interested. You know, I'm I'm trying to talk to him about religion. He wasn't interested in talking about religion at all. He wants to know what I know about African American history and what I know of uh, people like Dr. John Henry Clark, right? And Carter G. Woodson, that's what he wants to know from me. And I, I knew Carter G. Woodson, of course, had no idea who Dr. Clark is. And I promise you, this is gonna get back to the boys in just a moment. And, <laughs> and, 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 so, and so he hands me a DVD um, uh, of, uh, and the a documentary on um, John Henry Clark's life, John Henry Clark, A Great and Mighty Walk. In that documentary, I go home and I watch it, very excited to watch it. And in that documentary, Dr. Clark, at some point, so in that documentary, uh, Dr. John Henry Clark says something about Du Bois that either I had never heard before or it just didn't register to me. Um, if I did hear it before, which was that that Du Bois was uh, the foremost Pan-African philosopher, foremost Pan-African thinker. And I said to myself, oh, OK, so Du Bois was a Pan-Africanist. Um, I, I hadn't really gotten into, you know, that part of Du Bois, even though these things are happening at the same time that, that he's writing um, things like the the soul of black folk. You know, he he attends attends the first Pan-African Congress in 1900, right? Um, but, but these aren't things that are really being, uh, you know, impressed upon me. And so, you know, me really trying to get into what Pan-Africanism is, uh, I, I, I hear that and I think to myself, 
okay, there's more to the boys than meets the eye, right? Um, so at that moment, uh, not only did uh, Dr. Clark become kind of, kind of a posthumous mentor of mine because he had died by that time, but uh, he had led me to avenues of Du Bois's intellectual growth that I didn't know exist. And so I start to um, research more to, about Du Bois. And uh, the first thing I did was get uh, David Levering Lewis's um, biography on Du Bois. And then I got Du Bois's own autobiographies, uh, Dusk of Dawn, um, Soliloquy, and um, the autobiography of um, uh, du Bois. So, uh, so I'm looking through his autobiographies. I really want to understand how does he come to the conclusions that he did about um, about his his notion that, um, as he says in the world in Africa, that he is an African who is writing from the African point of view, right? And so, you know, all of these things, you know, very influ much influenced me to um, to continue my my research with Du Bois, even though I, at that time, I was still uh, I had a little bit more favoritism towards uh, Marcus Garvey, <laughs> um, and and in in some instances, kind of still do um, because Du Bois, in 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 some respects, kind of um, adopted some of Garvey's. Um, uh, politics in some respect, not not wholesale, but but to some degree. All right, because you say that, I, I wanted to help us understand. Uh, I, was there a kind of collaboration, or how do you how do you stack up the two, uh, Marcus Garvey and um, and the boys? Of course, we already in this series, we already talked about Marcus Garvey. The video is already out there. And for those that are listening to us, it was an interesting interview. And of course, even for a particular person, we can do two or three more because I say, if we are talking about our hero every day, it is not enough mm. because we need it. So tell me, how do you stack up both of them, either differently or in similarity? Help say something about it. Uh, I mean, there are two people that um, you can compare, but I don't really like to compare. I mean, they they had two different approaches in uh, in their Pan-Africanism and in their, uh, you know, in their view of what must be done for for people of African descent. So um, Garvey uh, had some courage in ways uh, that Du Bois didn't have, and perhaps Du Bois had some courage in ways that Garvey didn't have, but, you know, Garvey wasn't afraid to meet with groups like the Ku Klux Klan, right? <laughs> you know, and, and he meets with them. He said, look, we, we have a common interest. Uh, you don't want us here and we don't want to be here. You know, so how, <laughs> how do we, us get out of here. <laughs> how do we uh, how do we, you know, come to uh, 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 meeting this 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 common goal? Um, and and I, I never forget Garvey does this this interview on the radio and uh, it, it, the 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 reporter is telling him or the the person interviewing him is saying uh you know the things that you say you can be hung for and he says there's a million trees between here and africa we can have a lynching party tonight oh <laughs> <laughs> uh. so garvey was uh you, you know brilliant at rhetoric brilliant at rhetoric um 
and 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 brilliant at um, uh, and at propaganda and, and and brilliant at propaganda in ways that Du Bois just wasn't. You know, um, Du Bois was uh, was savvy enough to create as the organ of the NAACP, the Crisis uh, Magazine. And so, you know, he had, a, he had quite a reach, you know, uh, because of the Crisis Magazine. But uh, Garvey, um, in his estimates, had millions of people um, reading under him, although the more conservative estimates we get from Du Bois himself, <laughs> who says that uh, he might have, you know, a couple hundred thousand as, um, as 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 members or or at least as um, as actual paying members of uh, the UNIA organization, but um, but yeah, so I mean the, those two people, they very much um, were watching you know each other. The, uh, uh, the boys uh, referred to Garvey's movement as um, you know the agitation. <laughs> Um, he was afraid that the uh, the colonial powers would mix up his movement and Garvey's movement and and conflate them as the same thing, and and not take uh, him seriously. But uh, Du Bois does very interesting things, um, you know, at, near the end of his life. You know, he has this uh, he has this rivalry of sorts with people you know so with booker t washington for example um he tells john hope that uh that he hopes not to end up in booker t washington's washington's camp because he he basically kind of sees and this is not du bois's words but this is mine and how i think he perceives the situation as booker t washington is kind of like a negro overseer um who's using uh these white philanthropist money in uh, in a way to you know in uh, to, to kind of you know keep a plantation going, uh, although that's you know kind of laughable in the sense of how Du Bois later in his life uses white philanthropists' money, but that's a whole other conversation. But the, but the thing is, at the end of Du Bois's life or near the end of his life, um, there's a moment where Kwame Nkrumah um, is kind of critiquing Booker T. Washington and Du Bois. Uh, in a sense, tells him, you know, young man, we, we neither of us have felt the lash of the master's whip on our backs, you know, so perhaps we should not, um, you know, critique him in that way. And then um, and then and then he 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 speaks kind of highly of Garvey after Garvey dies. Um, you know, he he still kinds of kind of kind of sees Garvey as uh uh, you know, this this was a, someone who was getting getting ahead of himself and his his dreams and the way he wished to have them would wouldn't be realized. But he felt that Garvey was actually earnest in his love for um, for African people and for wanting to realize um, his dream of bringing about an Africa uh, for the Africans, right? Uh, an Africa that uh, in an African world that had its own autonomy, that had its own sovereignty. So Du Bois and his reflections, you know, at 70, 80, and 90 years of age, um, it's very interesting. Thank you for that. I promise this is the last question I will ask about it too, because they're too important for us. So anyway, <laughs> all right. Now, um, Du Bois, um, 
Marcus Garvey are both alive and they are both uh, in their different movement. Is there any time we can say that they ever meet physically to engage? Uh, it could be maybe either during those conferences that were organized or maybe an attempt to meet each other one-on-one to talk, to express idea for a common front. Is there anything we can know about that? I don't know if... I know they've they've definitely been in the same space as each other. Du Bois definitely um, went to uh, some meetings that that Garvey um, that Garvey was at. So I know they were in the same space. I don't know if they were ever close enough physically to each other to you know to shake hands or anything like that. But they they definitely had um, correspondences with each other and <laughs> some some quite ugly things to say about each other to each other. Um, in those correspondences, but uh, but clearly, because of their conversations, I mean, there was one time that, you know, and and Garvey could have been just mocking the boys, but he, Garvey essentially says that his organization is 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 <laughs> uh, hosting an election to find out who should be the president of you know of all of Africa, um, he, you know, and and Du Bois is one of the candidates, and will he put his name in the ring? <laughs> And the boys basically responds, absolutely not. You know, I, I don't want anything to do with your craziness, right? Um, but um, uh, so, you know, there was definitely uh, correspondences uh, with the boys. But, you know, there's something interesting that I, I want to, to point out about the boys is that I mentioned before he was 95 years old when he died, right? This is a person who, uh, and I, I don't think people, you know, understand the significance of this. This was a person who was coming into prominence during the time of Frederick Douglass in, you know, the late 19th century, during the time of Frederick Douglass. And he, he is contemporary with Frederick Douglass, with Booker T. Washington, with Marcus Garvey, uh, with A. Philip Randolph, with all of these, you know, very, you know, famous figures that we kind of see and think of like just in the background um, or in, in not the background, but just kind of um, in very early civil rights history, right? Um, not, you know, the, the period that we think about as the civil rights period. Uh, but he's, you know, he's, he's a contemporary of all these people and he dies the night before the March on Washington, right? So he dies at the height, um, or uh, you know, the day before what was was ostensibly the height of, of Martin Luther King's career. So this is very significant, you know. This is this is, you know, uh, uh, Du Bois, um, and is is interesting. Uh, the the next morning during the March on Washington. Um, <laughs> Uh, people are not, people are telling, you know, each other, like it, the whispers are going, getting around that Du Bois has died, right? But the way they referred to him as, it, it wasn't Du Bois, was, it was the old man. They said the old man has died, you know, and everyone knew who they were talking about because this is someone who has been so significant in uh, the lives of African-Americans um, and in, in the lives of people of African descent. Um, in various por- portions of the world and, and, and even in the African continent. Uh, so 
uh, very, very significant individual, very significant um, uh, person that uh, should the 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 totality of his life should really be uh, further investigated in a way that uh, that brings out his later theories, um, which I think, if I could say that Du Bois would uh, be more appreciative if the things that he thought of <laughs> in the end of his life was considered um, in 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 greater light than the things he was thinking of at, at the beginning of his career. Um, so yeah. Thank you for that. I, but I think that is really a great thing. Yeah, thank you for for pointing out that. Also for the father, uh, for the father, he entered prominence uh, quite early in his life, and he was able to say what he had to say with the spirit of youthfulness in him. Mm. And then growing old, ninety-five before he died, and able to speak and express himself again, we can then compare and contrast to see what is actually the evolution of the human being and how we think and how we see the things. No, you know, in Africa, it is said that. What a man sees standing, sitting down on the chair, a child that is on top of the tree cannot see it. Mm. It is true. Uh, and of course, it have a, a deeper meaning other than just the, the figurative uh, way that we might think of that. But it is a good thing. Uh, for, Like you said, for those people who are interested to investigate the life of this individual uh, in a particular way, it is interesting, very interesting. Because we are all product of our society and our experiences. All right, now talking of your book, mm. uh, what do you want people to look up to? I want you to give them some something that, what should they be expected to get at the end of, because you say it will be out by August, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, what are they looking up to? Uh, well, uh, the first thing is, uh, it, this to me is the first um, Afrocentric analysis um, of Du Bois and his thinkings and writings towards Africa, the, fo the first um, uh, extensive Afrocentric analysis of that, I should say. Um, of course, there, there have been articles and other things, and then there's been Afrocentric analysis of, of, of Du Bois in, in other ways, particularly um, by scholars such as Raylan Rabaka, right? But this is the, you know, the first extensive Afrocentric analysis of how Du Bois uh, decided to write about African history and African politics and things of that nature. So that's one thing to look forward to. The other thing is, uh, I mentioned Carter G. Woodson earlier. And um, so just one thing I really like about uh, uh, Carter G. Woodson is that, um, you know, he, he spent his life or you know his early career being supported by, um, you know these these you know Methodist philanthropists and um, and then he immediately or came to an immediate conclusion that he needs to break away uh, from them and to support himself and, and receive the supporting from other from other black folks. So, um, in 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 given that context. Uh, Du Bois is often pitted against, you know, Booker T. Washington as, you know, that the, the, these two people were the, um, <laughs> the, uh, the, you know, they had this real rivalry, which they, they did to some extent, you know, right? But it, it wasn't 
to me in 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 a you know I think he and Marcus Garvey had maybe an even bigger rivalry that 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 got really ugly right um but I say you know or at least I believe and I and I say it in in the book that his real rival um intellectual rival was Carter G Woodson um Carter G Woodson was you know was uh, the second person to get a PhD in history from Harvard University. Du Bois was the first, you know. And so here, here you have this, you know, this uh, youngster in a sense coming out, <laughs> getting his PhD from Harvard and studying principally the same things, the African-American and African history and culture. Um, and, and Carter G. Woodson and Du Bois are uh, kind of seen as uh, you know these these premier figures um, in terms of you know an African American who understands um, African history and African culture and, and African American history and culture right and so th- there's this moment where uh, Du Bois is is um, well let me back up Du Bois and Carter G Woodson um, are a little upset over the fact that um, the um, Ansem folks, uh, I know I'm, I'm not getting the name right, but it's like Phelps. I think the Ansem Phelps Foundation, um, they, uh, you know, hosted by the, you know, the, the, the person himself, Ansem, he wants uh, to create an encyclopedia of the Negro, right? Um, he and some other philanthropists, they come together as a white philanthropist. They want to create the encyclopedia of the Negro. And the first meeting in, uh, in, in wanting to create this, neither Du Bois nor Carter G. Wilson are invited to. And they both take it as a slight, right? They both were like, you don't invite us, you know, to this, um, uh, to, to, to create this this uh, journal, like we, we're we're uh, we are who we are, right? And everyone knew who they were at the time. The second meeting, Du Bois is invited to, and Du Bois is then asked to be to, the editor of the encyclopedia. And Du Bois writes Carter G. Woodson, and uh, he he says to Carter G. Woodson, he says, "Listen, um, I know that." Um, you know, you have, you know, you, you're going to have your reservations towards this. But the reason why I agreed to this uh, was not because, you know, of these white philanthropists, but because of uh, the rest of the committee who uh, impressed upon me the, you know, the need for this. And he says, listen, the enemy has the money and, you know, either they use it for their own means or we use it. We use their money for our own means. And Carter G. Woodson you know, the kind of the epitome of his response to this is, my dear Du Bois, I do not accept the gifts of the Greeks. <laughs> and and I just thought, you know, that that's, if everything I had been reading about uh, Carter G. Woodson, that is, that is so Woodson, you know, he said, listen, I, I, I don't have faith in these people um, and you shouldn't have faith in them either. I don't accept the gifts of the Greeks. I will go on to do, uh, you know, my own plans for my own scholarship in my own way and have it funded 
uh, either by myself or others that look like me. I'm not going to uh, rely on them. And, uh, you know, one thing that I could say about that is um, Woodson, he should be recognized more than he already is. I mean, he rec he's recognized as the father of Black history, right? Because he created Negro History Week, which became Black History Month in, the, in America. And then, um, you know, that, that kind of spread throughout. But um, I think Woodson should be really placed up there as an, as an intellectual and ideological rival with Du Bois. Thank you so much for that. Thank you. I really do appreciate that. But I do have a question there that I'd like to ask you. Mm. Uh, now, uh, Du Bois and Kada Joe Wilson uh, will get a PhD, both of them from Harvard, uh, for African-American history and African history. But who is teaching them this history? Are they the same white people who have the masters, they know everything, they are teaching them to these uh, black people. I'm sort of curious about that. That is also um, in line with these uh, white philanthropists who is creating, who want to create the African history dictionary or for what? Mm. Um, so Du Bois himself, uh, I mean, although he, he did find some influence uh in, in 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 the way he does history the way he does sociology from uh you know the the professors that he were around he was around at harvard um but he took it upon himself to write um the the suppression of the slave trade which was his dissertation right and and in that uh you know that that that, in, that entailed him having some understanding, some cursory understanding at least, of uh, West African history uh, of that time period, right? And then uh, an understanding of what is happening to African-Americans in this process of becoming, or what is happening from Africa in this process of uh, becoming enslaved. Uh, so, uh, but, he certainly has to deal with and dealt with throughout his life the um what i would call today the you know the eurocentric uh uh ideologies that's 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 you know that's that would that would kind of hinder his work to some degree but uh but the boys his brilliance in in works like the Philadelphia Negro, or um, or even the Soul of Black Folk, but also um, the Negro Church. His his brilliance in those kinds of works is that he's doing himself these sociological surveys, and he is presenting you know you know a true sociological survey from. Um, from the uh, from what he's gaining of the perspectives of you know African Americans, but also you know of, co of course his own perspective of what's happening in his own lived experience, right? So a lot of that has some you know 
some Afrocentric merit to it. Uh, but of course, you know, it, it, you know, he's, you know, somewhat plagued by, um, you know, the, the Eurocentric um, methods and Eurocentric uh, perception of people of African descent. And you can see that. You see that very early on in his writings. But uh, much later in his life, you start to see how uh, he's, he, you know, he's, he's evolving. Um, there's a moment in the world in Africa where he talks about uh, these African chiefs who have this beautiful regalia, right? And they've traded it for secondhand clothing and top hats, you know, from Europe and have been convinced that these are, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, the best of, you know, kind of regalia in, in Europe. And so, you know, the, and the Europeans are getting these, these beautiful cloths and, and things that are worth a lot of money from them and trading it for something that's worth nothing, you know. And so he, he, he laments on that and he says that, um, that, you know, the African has been made to think that his culture is is less than or evil or or et cetera et cetera, and that the Europeans' culture is um, so much superior. So he does have those moments where um, where he where he definitely is going against his um, you know the 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 ideologies of even people who trained him, right? Um, and so uh, so he grows. He he grows a lot. Uh, Carter G. Woodson very, very much the same thing. If you read the uh, Miseducation of the Negro and even the Education of the Negro, uh, which is a much longer text that he wrote, uh, Carter G. Woodson talks about the fact that uh, African-Americans are taught the history and the language of the Anglo-Saxons or the Teutons, you know, the, the, the people of Germanic descent, right? But they're not taught at all um, the history of Africa or, uh, or who, you know, who they are in terms of their African identity. And he, and he even lambasts uh, historically black universities um, for, 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 you know, for, for continuing this. Um, for focusing on Greek and Latin and things of that nature and, and not focusing on African languages and wanting to write, I mean, wanting to uh, give uh, their students an education that was grounded in African um, epistemology, right? Um, he said that's a, that's, a, that's a really big problem, you know, and, and, and Carter G. Woodson is, is writing these things um, during a time where he himself is really studying African history, he writes, you know, one of the earliest um, uh, book of uh, African folklore. Um, it was principally meant for children, but, um, but, you know, this is Carter G. Woodson and this is Du Bois. So clearly something within them started to realize that, uh, that the West is never going to paint um, the the history and the identity of African people in any light that uh, would serve to uh, to uplift uh, uh, those very people and and not going to really recognize or acknowledge 
the the genius of African heritage and African culture, right? And so they started to, you know, they said, if the West is not going to do it, we will have to do it ourselves. Thank you for that. Thank you for uh, very much for that, uh, Doctor. That is very important. You know, it looked like what we were saying before the the beginning. Uh, no, actually, sometime in the middle, that um, the opposition. Okay, let me call it a competitor for. Uh, so at least uh, nobody's offended. The Europeans are the competitors to Africans. No, uh, they are there in Africa for their interest because this is a market. This is a business. They are not there for the humanitarian agenda that is just a host it's not true and nobody is there for the humanitarian agenda so uh, if they are there for a business now let's um, call them our business uh, um, competitor and we are allowing them to teach us how to survive in the business we are going to lose <laughs> of course we are going to lose it's logical that they will teach us something that will make us lose it's, it's quite strange. <laughs> okay, now, it's the, other, the first interview that I did with you, at the point I was asking you, I think with you or uh, some other professors or so, it was, uh, what is the collaboration that is going on right now, um, as we currently speak, between uh, some U.S. university and universities in Africa, or maybe between U.S. professors and professors of Africa that are living in Africa that are teaching? It kind of... Um, um, so that we can have a reference, so we can both feed on each other in terms of knowledge. Because knowledge is nothing more than the experience that we put down now for other people to learn from. Uh, because if uh, Du Bois and Kadaji Wissing are learning everything from the West, of course, we see that that is not what happened at the end of the day. That is not the whole thing that happened because they will re-educate themselves. Basically, you get education, that is fine to get the qualification. Now you are going to re-educate yourself if you if you need to stand out, and I think they did both of them, and that is why we respect them in our community. But what I actually want to point out there is, um, if we can point anything out in terms of if they have done also some studies in Africa, if they have collaborated with some people coming from Africa, if they have done anything outside the European watch, because this is what I think it is: the European basically are telling. Africans in Africa that don't worry, I will tell you what the African in the diaspora are thinking. They, they go back to the same African in the diaspora and tell them, hey, don't worry, I will tell you what the Africans in Africa are thinking. That is what is reflected in their books. That is what is reflected in their movie. That is what is reflected in everything they do. But what I'm saying is that we don't need to do that. We need to boycott them. If, if you are an African historian, you don't need to just read the European books. You need to go to Africa or look for somebody who is an African, who is going to speak to you from the point of view of an African to tell you, this is who I am. I am your brother. We can both learn from each other. So this is from the point of view I'm trying to understand if the boys or Kadaji Wissing have had the chance to be able to learn outside the European watch of the reality of Africa. Help me with that. Uh, well, I mean, I can say that Du Bois himself um, was uh, was was doing just that. I mean, he he dies in in Ghana, right? He he, he travels to Ghana. Um, he was very good friends with Kwame Nkrumah. Kwame Nkrumah was somewhat of a mentee of his. Kwame Nkrumah, you know, and the, and this is this this speaks to the um, 
the age-old cross-cultural connection, cross-political connections that um, that we have, you know, between you know between African Americans and Africans in the continent and those in the Caribbean as well. Um, uh, uh, Kwame Nkrumah comes to uh, Pennsylvania and, and attends Lincoln University, which is a historically black uh, college, right? Um, uh, not before long, he is introduced to Du Bois. Uh, they develop some type of, you know, mentee mentorship. And uh, Du Bois ends up in, in, in Ghana. And remember that Encyclopedia of the Negro that I mentioned before, Du Bois uh, takes that project, takes the kind of, you know, the basis of that project. And in Ghana, he uh, has now renamed it the Encyclopedia Africana, right? And Nkrumah has given uh, him kind of a, you know, an, an editorial team to work this out. And Nkrumah says to this team, and this is perhaps the first time, you know, this word goes down in history. He says to this team that the boys and I agree that this work should be an Afrocentric work, right? That this should be done from the African point of view. And so, uh, so we, you know, we have the historical basis for these types of relationships, um, you know, across the uh, Atlantic. And um, so very recently, I was approached by a very good friend of mine uh, who is uh, from South Africa. He, he's a professor at the uh, University of South Africa. Um, and uh, his name is Lahasa Malloy. And, and he and I are actually meeting tomorrow because we're planning to uh, write a book on um, an, an edited volume on uh, Afrocentric approaches to, um, uh, to, you know, uh, dec decolonization, to um, in uh, African history, African culture, just a, a variety of things that we feel needs to be talked about, but talked about from the Afrocentric point of view. So, I mean, there's, there's, uh, there's definitely um, and it's not just me, of course, there, there's, there's many scholars who are doing very similar things with scholars from the African continent. Um, one other person who uh, is a historian, but I look up to um, in terms of just the sheer amount of things he's had published is a Nigerian by the name of Toyin Falola, right? And who's perhaps the most published African scholar in the world. Um, and uh, and and he does those kinds of things all the time. He, he bridges connections um, with with scholars uh, throughout the African world, and so um, so you know these things are happening. Thank you so much for that. Uh, it need to happen. I need to continue to happen because we have no reason why it should not happen. <laughs> anyway, I, I did I did say it the other time though, the last time that we were here, that the Europeans they are very clever. Either they are in the United States. They are bringing their people to come and study the history of Rome. Mm. Uh, this is for they are not making mistakes. So the same way we should be looking for a way to uh, send a, a black Africa to learn about Zimbabwe, 
to learn about ancient Benin, mm. to learn about the script, for example. We have the ECBD script, for example, mm. and many other scripts from, from Africa. Mm -hmm. uh, we should be intentionally doing that. Our, acad our, our academic expert should really be we push that into the people. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's only recently that we are talking of uh, a direct flight from Africa to the Caribbean. I was asking somebody I was interviewed, why is it taking on that long to do this? You know, anyway, <laughs> it's quite funny sometimes. Anyway, you know, that, that's by the way. <laughs> if I could say something on that. Um, Please. <laughs> I, I think that uh, our most, the African world's most prolific uh, fighter for just for, you know, you know, scholar who, you know, who fought for just what you're talking about is uh, uh, Dr. Shekanta Jo, right? Some people say Shekanta Diop. Um, the Senegalese polymath, he was a multi-genius. Um, and, you know, he studied history, language, uh, chemistry, you know, all kinds of things. Now, the thing about him is that, um, which, is, which is the thing about most scholars, is that as more information becomes available, theories and ideas become start to become outdated. Now, that doesn't mean that the theories themselves cannot be advanced upon because there's core elements of those theories that that hold some truth. Um, I was I was reading through Kevin Shillington's The History of Africa, um, his fourth edition. And, uh, you know, I just thought, you know, this is an Africanist scholar. So, of course, you know, he's going to have some leanings in this way. But I thought it very interesting that um, he acknowledged that Sheikh uh, you know, in his 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 um, his hypothesis of the the Africanness of the ancient Egyptians <laughs> are you know is is bearing uh, truth in in all of the available um, evidence that that we're getting today, and then also you know I would say that Sheikh uh thesis of cultural unity. Um, in, in African people and his, and his pushing for an African federated state, the more we research African history, the more we realize um, just how much of a cultural basis that there is for that. No matter if he had some of his linguistic, you know, data wrong, or if he had some of, you know, you know, some things wrong in, in other ways, the core of his theories of this cultural unity of Africa that is something, you know, Job should be really elevated um, in the African world for that. And he was, you know, he is to some extent, but um, th those are things, you know, his cross-cultural comparative analysis is something that um, really should be uh, employed more. We do a lot of comparative analysis between Africans and Europeans and Africans and Asians. We don't do enough between Africans and Africans, right? We don't do enough to really understand, to try to really understand that uh, that the African world uh, should start to unite on these cultural bases, and um, and so yeah, that's what I wanted to say to that. <laughs> thank you, thank you so much for that. That is important, absolutely important. I appreciate that. All right, now uh, the life and legacy of Web Du Bois and your upcoming book. 
So if you were to say this is the central message that you want to uh, outline in your book, uh, this is something that somebody can get. I don't know if you can even say that, but anyway, <laughs> I'm just saying it. Uh, the central piece of the book, no, for the fact that the book is not yet out, and that is why I'm, I'm just saying that. So what would that be, for example? Or a kind of way to sophisticate and the people that are listening, mm, yeah. <laughs> uh, central message is that the boys um, should not be relegated and frozen in time in his 30s and 40s, as if that is uh, the you know the the climax of his intellectual felt, right? Um, and that he, while he had uh, very Eurocentric um, subjectivities that plagued him throughout his life, even at the end of his life, he was a he continually he continuously um, grew intellectually, continuously grew in a more Afrocentric way, and uh, and so to to view the totality of his life. And, and the totality of the life of, um, you know, of all of our scholars really is very important. And to be able to analyze um, all aspects of his life is, is very important. And so that, that's the central kind of message I, that I'm trying to get across in that book, um, other than uh, that, that Du Bois also was, was starting to move towards uh, a cultural paradigm in order to unite African people. And I feel that, um, you know, I, I push that argument forward for the necessity of a cultural paradigm juxtaposed to the racial paradigm, because the racial paradigm would always be dominated by Europe. All right. And again, that book is going to be available by August, so people should get ready to get copy for themselves. All right. Now, um, looking at today, 2023, uh, what do ordinary Americans, or maybe let's say the African American, think of Du Bois? And when they think of Du Bois, what do they, or how much do they think of him as a as a figure? Uh, the the average African American, um, uh, you know, they they think I would imagine things highly of Du Bois, and I say I imagine because you know, just in my own experience, the average African American thinks very highly of Du Bois. They think of him as you know, a prolific um, intellectual, uh, one of our quote-unquote greats, right? Um, so the, from, from my experience, the average African-American thinks very highly of Du Bois. Um, I, don't, I don't think, you know, most people think negatively of him at all. Um, he's considered one of our quote-unquote greats, you know, one of our great intellectuals. And, um, you know, so, but my uh, charge is again to really consider the totality of Du Bois' scholarship, the totality of his life, his you know the totality of his intellectual growth, and that doesn't mean that, that you know there aren't scholars who do that, um, and then there aren't scholars you know there, there's those who have tried to uh, uh, categorize his intellectual growth into like three different phases, which I I, I find to be problematic to some degree, but uh, but the principal theories that are pushed when it comes to Du Bois are the theories that he developed very, very early in his life. And so I argue that um, something that he really uh, put more stock into theorizing was uh, what he called Pan-Africa, 
right? And that is, uh, I think, was the, you know, that was the culmination of his ideas for people of African descent and um, the culmination of his ideas of identity. All right. Thank you so much for that. Uh, now, is it possible that Du Bois, in the course of uh, his career, um, doing what he was doing, uh, he could have had some challenges, uh, some difficulty in the Menji or sustaining his idea uh, that maybe you want to share with us? Um, I mean, I, I think very early on he was, you know, he was definitely challenged by uh, trying to figure a way uh, to free Africa, quote unquote, in a sense, uh, from its, you know, colonial struggle, right, and from from these colonial powers, but doing it in a way that at the same time did not uh, totally upset the colonial power structure because, you know, he, 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 you know, he realized they have all the power and in at any moment they can decide to move in and try to shut his whole operations down. And he, you know, he knew that he was being, you know, he was being followed. I mean, his, his, uh, him going to, so here's, here's a few examples of that. Um, in the 1950s, there was a genocide conference that was held by the, what was at that time, uh, what would be considered the United Nations, right? Uh, the uh, kind of League of Nations. And this, at this conference, Du Bois, or before this conference, Du Bois drafted um, something that we call today, We Charge Genocide. And Du Bois argued that what has happened to African-Americans is um, is equitable to, to genocide in, in, this, in this country. And uh, Du Bois being under the eye of the American government as a possible communist during the time of the Red Scare and, and all these things, which, which Du Bois definitely had socialist and or communist leanings. Um, he... Uh, you know, he was, you know, he was watched uh, very much so, and he was not allowed to go to the genocide uh, conference. He wasn't given um, a lot granted visa to go there. And so he uh, secretly <laughs> had the documents um, uh, mailed to an associate of his who then presented these documents at the conference, right? Um, another thing that happened with the boys is that uh, when, you know, when he goes to Ghana, at the end of his life, his his intention wasn't to actually stay in Ghana. Um, he he wanted to come back to the United States, but uh, the United States effectively barred him from from coming back. And I don't think he necessarily, you know, he might have lamented this to some degree. He had friends and family and things of that nature he want, would want to see and that kind of thing. But I think he, um, you know, he welcomed this as uh, the next stage of his life. So, but that that definitely uh, perhaps hindered some of his um, his political activities um, in the United States. Well, I mean, did hinder his political activities. He couldn't step foot here. Uh, another challenge, um, which is just you know not the challenge of uh, peoples and nations, but the challenge of life, is that uh, he was never able to complete the Encyclopedia Africana. Uh, he died before uh, its completion. And so, uh, and, and that 
I'm sure he wanted to be one of the kind of, you know, magnum opus moments, you know, of his scholarship. But uh, but, it, it, you know, it was never completed, at least not under his editorship. Thank you so much for that. Anyway, I'm not going to ask you why it was actually banned. If you were the citizen of the United States, why his country decided to ban him? Because anyway, that, that would take less of his own. Maybe that for another day. Mm. Uh, I want to thank you so much for the time. We have spent more than two hours discussing the life and legacy of uh, of, the, of the boys, and, and I, of course, he deserved it. He, as a, an individual, deserved the the time. And I thank you so much for that. So, what would you consider uh, his greatest legacy, and how would you conclude the conversation, uh, leaving the message uh, in line with why people should care about this particular individual in the history of the United States? Uh, the boys, what I considered about his legacy is that, um, at least from my perspective, from my point of view, as someone who is a Pan-Africanist, as someone who is an Afrocentrist, um, who is an Africologist, is that uh, Du Bois' Bois's legacy and the usefulness of Du Bois' scholarship, from my perspective, is that uh, there is a roadmap for scholars and for, you know, just people in general for them to look at the life of Du Bois and his approach to African people and to African history and to African politics and, uh, and, and, and African diaspora history and, and politics as well and culture and look at this and see the evolution of his thought throughout his life, if you read throughout his works, but also understand that this was a person that is considered one of the most brilliant people. I mean, he's really considered a, one of the fathers of sociology, not you know just African-American sociology, but sociology period. Right. One of the fathers of the field, um, someone who comes in as as the field is just becoming a field is just branching out of the field of history. Right. So so this significant figure is uh, uh, so earnestly because of his understanding and because of his heart towards the African world, he so earnestly believes and understands himself to be an African and believes and understands African-Americans and, and others of the diaspora to be African and, uh, and understands that people in Africa should have autonomy, should have sovereignty, and should uh, uh, be, um, and should have those things on their own terms, not on borrowed terms should have sovereignty and autonomy on their own terms, not on borrowed terms, meaning from their own cultural paradigms, they should have this, 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 um, this African autonomy. And, uh, and so that, to me, that's, uh, that's something that people should really uh, consider when they're looking at the life of Du Bois. Thank you so much for that. I appreciate the time. I appreciate also the sharing. Yes, the life and legacy of the boys is very important that people pay attention to him, to individuals such as these who have made a lot of contribution to the life of his people. 
Uh, but why are we talking about them? We're talking about them because we have a lot to learn from them. We want to know their passes so we can avoid the mistake that they have made and reinforce the positive side uh, of their progress. Because like I said before, it is a journey. It is not ended. We are still on the road. So we need to we need to learn from those who have been here before us so we can know how to continue to play our part uh, in the journey. Because we too, we are not going to be here forever. Mm. But we are playing our part now, learning from those who have been here before us so that other people will also learn from maybe what we we might have, we could have been able to contribute to the joint. Mm. So thank you so much. I appreciate the time. I really do. I appreciate you, brother. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure you subscribe so you never miss any of our future episodes. Rate and review Obehead podcast and share with your friends who might need it. I remain Obehead A14. Thank you so much for listening. I'll talk to you in the next episode.